Welcome to our latest Maverick Sports Podcast, and it doesn't get much bigger than this. I'm Craig Ray, Senior Sports Journalist at Daily Maverick. In the coming weeks and months, we will talk about different sports and subjects, but this week, all eyes are on Yokohama in Japan and the final of Rugby World Cup 2019. The Springboks meet England in a repeat of the 2007 final, looking to make history for several reasons. No side has won the Rugby Championship and Rugby World Cup in the same year, and no side has ever lost a pool match and gone on to win the Web Ellis Cup. But there are some good omens too. The Boxers' two Rugby World Cup wins came 12 years apart in 1995 and 2007. And, well, we're 12 years on from that last win. In 2007, Osterrand was the lone survivor of the 95 squad. And in 2019, Franz Steyn is the lone survivor of the 2007 squad. And when the British and Irish Lions toured South Africa in 1997 and 2009, both times the Springboks were the reigning world champions, the Lions returned to South Africa in 2021. But omens are not going to be enough. The box are going to have to go out and beat England because Eddie Jones's team have certainly set a high bar at this tournament. And to help us dissect the battle and examine all the possible scenarios, I'm joined by the best rugby brain you might not have heard of yet. Selling Nell is a rugby columnist and he's also a technical analyst for various professional teams. He's worked with Jake White at Toyota of the Blitz, John Dobson at Western Province and Gary Gold with the USA national team. Welcome, Zell. Morning, Craig. Better intro this week? Yeah, not too bad. <laughs> That's, that flowed quite smoothly. All right. We know you've picked England from the outset, um, but I'm sure you'll be happy to be wrong this weekend, but you have picked them from the get-go to win the World Cup. Yeah, I'd be delighted to be wrong. I mean, you're in the industry as well. You know how much uh, South Africa needs some positive news about the rugby, positive news in the country, really. Um, and then, you know, all the sort of spin-offs that come from having the first black captain win a World Cup in his first go, you know, it would just be amazing. If South Africa could pull this off. It'd be incredible. And and uh, it's not beyond the realms of possibility for us to do that. Yeah. But let's just take a quick little step back. Uh, both teams were named this morning. Um, no real surprises there. England, the same team that uh, that beat the All Blacks so comprehensively in that semifinal. I know 19-7 doesn't sound comprehensive, but I think we've got to say, if we go back to those semifinals quickly, that, that they were probably 25 points better than the All Blacks. They had two tries disallowed. Um, the, the try the All Blacks scored was very soft uh, from an England mistake. But was there a little kernel of hope in that little soft moment for the Springboks uh, that, that England showed under pressure on their line with that line-out? Um, I mean, yes. You know, We'd have less hope if England didn't uh, concede any points against the All Blacks. Um, every team has got their weaknesses, obviously. And England is no different. Um, I'm just not sure... You know, I think the game is going to be different uh, between South Africa and England than it was against the All Blacks. So, um, All Blacks number one side in the world, going for a third uh, world championship at the time, uh, and have threats all across the park. It was inevitable that they were going to cross the line there, and obviously, like you say, that does give us a glimmer of hope. I'm not sure how many weaknesses England have for us to exploit, though. We'll get into those a little bit later. The Springboks uh, <laughs> semi-final victory. Um, I've spoken to some Irish colleagues. Um, I was uh, on an Irish radio station earlier this week. Shane Horgan was going. It was anti-rugby. Um, Brian O'Driscoll's <laughs> said this week that he, he's supporting England for the first time. Can't really bring himself to to support the, the, what the Springbok sort of style of rugby stands for. Um, you know, it wasn't the prettiest game, we have to admit. Uh, it was an arm wrestle and both sides kicked the ball. But Wales played into the Springboks' hands, didn't ask any real questions of the Springboks, so the Springboks kept doing what they do and kept it tight. And I got a feeling too, Zell, that without Chesney and Colby in the side, the Springboks were lacking a little bit of X-factor, so they were quite happy to 
play as conservatively as possible without someone like Colby to bring into the game and, and Wales played into their hands. It won't be the case this weekend, though. No. No, I don't think that. Um, you know, O'Driscoll saying that uh, he's going to back England because the box play negative rugby or don't play the prettiest rugby is like uh, is like somebody after a rough night saying they're going to quit drinking vodka. It's tequila only now. I mean, the, the two teams that are in the final are the teams that kick the most and the teams that apologize the least for kicking the ball. Um, and I think it's the fact that England have spent four years invested in that with no compromise uh, or little compromise that actually makes them the favorites. It's the reason that they are going to be so tough to break because they won't second guess themselves. They'll, they'll happily trade kicks for 20 minutes um, without a break. And I think most of the other sides, teams like Australia will never kick it back. I think New Zealand has got an edge. The Lions have showed it in Super Rugby in recent years. New Zealand teams can be baited into running when they shouldn't run. I think England is a side you're really going to struggle to bait into having a dip if it's not on. Yeah. So, I mean, they, they're very disciplined is what you're saying. They'll stick to whatever their plan is and they're going to stick to it rigidly. So, you know, the Springboks also stick to their plan. So, so where does this game break? I mean, yes. who, who blinks first? What causes the team to blink? Yeah. So, I, I've got no doubt in my mind that Russi is a, is a stickler for, for the plan. But I know that Russi's a guy who has um, always wanted to experiment with attack to get the most out of attack. And so I think that's, that explains why a guy like Swayce was in the mix because of what he had done with the Lions and what, why a guy like Vili is starting at fullback because of the attacking element that he brings to the box. Russi understands that you can't just kick and tackle, win turnovers and kick and tackle and win. The, you, at some point when you gain field position, the next step in that serial process is to be able to switch on your attack and score points. And so that's, that's an area that Russi, um, I think, wrestles with the most. He's got no issues with setting up the kicking game and setting up the defense. Those things come naturally to his system. Um, but it's about how to unlock and break down other teams on attack to score tries. That is something that, that Russi has continually tried to evolve in. So the point I'm trying to get to here is that the box are going to be less of a no-blink side than England. England... All the negative press that Eddie's had from guys leaking in the camp and saying, oh, he's so tough on us and he makes us kick all the time and we always have to run and he's not fun. That's four years invested in creating this monster that will not veer off the, off the plan. Whereas I think a guy like Vili, Fuff, uh, we've got players, we've got components in the side who bring X-Factor, Cheslin, guys who bring X-Factor to the game, but who are therefore vulnerable to maybe sniffing an opportunity that isn't there. Yeah. Um, and that, for me, that is the that is the crux. That that is where this game will change. And obviously, tight games like World Cup finals generally are. Twenty fifteen was the exception, where that All Black side was so far ahead of the next team that uh, you know that was always going to be a comfortable win. But generally, they come down to one score, one try, one moment. Um, and you you sense that this weekend could be similar, although. If you just look at purely at the semi-final, you would think England are far better than the Springboks. But you know you can't compare two different games, apples with apples. I mean, at this World Cup, the Springboks are the leading point scorers and the leading try scorers at this World Cup. I know they've played against Canada, but you know England had their fairly easy games too in the in the, in the group phase. Um, yeah, and if you go just quickly over the um, the history between the two sides, I mean, totally uh, they played forty-two games. The Springboks have won twenty-five. England have won fifteen, and there's been two draws. But if you look at the World Cup, it's three-one in four meetings to the Springboks. But more recently, I think uh, the more interesting stat is the twenty-nineteen stats. Um, the Springboks have played eleven, won nine, lost one, drawn one. They've scored fifty tries in those eleven matches this year, uh, with an average winning score of thirty-six eleven. 
England, who everyone is telling us is this great attacking force and going to score a million points against the Springboks, uh, in this year, they've played 14, won 11, lost two, drawn one, 63 tries, average of 35-14 win this year. So the Springboks actually got a better average winning score than, the, than England. So there's a lot of, um, I suppose, cloak and dagger. Yeah. A lot of people think of the Springboks as this oafish team that can't score, yet the stats are telling us something different. Sure, they haven't um, perhaps um, shown their full hand in the knockout phases of the World Cup, but uh, is that something to be worried about? Yeah, no, um, so, I mean, all those stats that you spat out there now are all bang on points. And that, you know, that just reiterates the, the, um, the value and the efficacy of the kicking game because England put 40 points on Australia, um, also by kicking the ball. So South Africa and England both apply the same recipe. It's about pressure tactics and then converting the, the opportunities that come from the, that pressure into points. Um, for me, what's concerning for South Africa is that we played Japan and we created numerous opportunities against Japan and finished very few of them. Um, and my feeling is that against England, we are going to have far fewer opportunities. And that's why I was worried about the form of our 9, 10, and 15, um, because they're the, they're the decision makers who determine whether a turnover turns into a try or, uh, you know, a, another turnover. So, um, yeah, f- for me, that's a worry. I think England are going to be more clinical on opportunities than we'll be. Um, and, even though a guy like Chesin and a guy like Vili can convert opportunities into points, I'm just not sure that those guys are in the form um, and are consistent enough to do that. Let's talk about Vili for a second. I mean, he's having a tough tournament. He's certainly not in the form that we would like him to be in. Um, yet, even within those those average games, he's doing little things. It was his pass that put Delende into space last week for the try. Uh, Vili ran a good line in the Japan game and Pollard threw the long pass that got Mapimpi away for his second try. Vili ran a great line to get in there and create the extra man. So in amongst a lot of average work, he's doing some good things that maybe go unnoticed because of all the mistakes or, or the poor options he's taking. So do you think, you know, the fact that the coach keeps backing him, do you think that will, it's got to pay off at some point, you would hope for Rossi. And I guess this weekend's the one you really hope it pays off for him. Yeah, spot on. That's 100% correct. It's just a pity that we're in a situation where we, we're hoping for something to click with Vili and we're hoping for something to click with Faf and Andre. Whereas with England, it's not about hope, it's about execution. It's like the Bulls of 2007 to 2009. <clears throat> they were all about execution above innovation. So on, on a Saturday when they went into a match, they weren't hoping that key things were going to fit into place. The key things were there. It was just about executing the plan. I feel like for us, we try and create opportunities for Vili to dance and then hope that the other team buys that dance and he scores some points from it. We're not really in control of that situation in the same way that I feel like England are. We mm. create the opportunity, we create the stage, uh, and then we hope that the guys convert it. So, so Vili on his day is an absolute game breaker. And so is Fuff and so is, is Hundre. Um, the question is, are those guys at their peak going to be in this final? England played the near perfect game against the All Blacks. I mean, first of all, they came out for this first 10 minutes, ball in hand. No one expected that. Everyone thought England was going to kick and they ran. The All Blacks ragged, scored that try. And then once they settled into the game, started using the boot, putting the All Blacks in bad areas of the field. It was almost like you felt they wanted to score early, set their stall out early, and then make the All Blacks chase the game from the wrong areas of the field, which is kind of what they, they got right. But it was the near perfect game. They hardly made a mistake. Can they replicate it? I know they, they thrashed Australia, but I wouldn't say that was the perfect game, but Australia just played into their hands so well. Whereas the, the victory over the All Blacks was, was a brilliant performance uh, from minute one to 80. 
Yeah, is it possible to replicate that kind of form two weeks running under the pressure they will be under in a World Cup final? I think they can replicate the performance. I don't think they can do that against the Springboks. I think the final will be more like the Wales-South Africa semi than it will be like the New Zealand-England semi-final. I think that England... Well, don't tell the Irish that. I think that, yeah, <laughs> the, the, the English need to prepare themselves for a drag-down street fight on Saturday. Uh, you know, they are the favourites to beat the Springboks, but they are not going to get that on a silver platter. Um there are a couple of guys who are playing their last World Cups for South Africa in this in this team and uh, probably playing their last World Cups. And, um, you know, those guys are going to come out hammer, hammer and tongs. You know how South Africa reacts to confrontation. Mm. Uh, it's going to be brutal. It's going to be absolutely brutal. Guys are going to play like kamikazes. So uh, it's going to be less about technical stuff and a lot more about coping with that pressure, coping with that onslaught, sticking to the plan and then taking your opportunities. And I think... As I've discussed, I think England's plan is is pretty airtight. Um, if they weather that physicality, then then they'll win it. But it won't be like it was against New Zealand, where they controlled every facet of the game. They dominated the All Blacks at the breakdown. They controlled the game in every facet. Uh, the All Blacks struggled, struggled to exit uh, their own half. You know, England took complete control of that match. Um, I'm not sure they're going to enjoy that sort of ascendancy. On speaking of the, the breakdown, final. I mean that the Kamikaze kids. Curry and, and um, uh, Underhill. Underhill, thank you. Uh, they they have been phenomenal at this World Cup and there's a lot of talk about them and they dominated the breakdown. But yeah, Steve Hansen picked Scott Barrett at six last week and they did lose out. They missed Sam Kane at the breakdown. Um, the Springboks don't... I mean, Sia Khaleesi is a, is a fine player, but his, his role is a little bit different in the Springbok setup. He's not an out-and-out fetcher. He doesn't play to the ball. He's more about cleaning rucks, hitting rucks, linking. So who who... Other players, how does South Africa combat that England duo in particular at the breakdown? So those two guys are, are all-rounders. They're a lot like Sia. I mean, they, may, they may, may be better than him in certain aspects, and he may be better than them in others, but they're all-rounder flankers. They can do everything. They can compete on the deck. They're good ball carriers. They tackle. They're mobile. Um, and it's interesting that in terms of the com- uh, comparison of the back rows, um, Underhill and Curry are part of a back row that contests the defensive breakdown less than South Africa's flankers do. Our Lucy's get stuck in there. Where those guys' work rate uh, spikes is on attack. They hit attacking rucks. They generate good clean ball uh, for England to attack from. So they have slightly different roles, but they are very effective. Even though the, the Underhill and Curry are not major um, attendees at defensive breakdowns, they are good at uh, winning breakdown steals. Mm-hmm. So they choose their moments <clears throat> wisely. They're effective and, and technically they're accurate. Um, I'm not sure that the two of those guys are pound for pound exactly who you want to be tackling Dwayne and Peter Steff and potentially Malcolm in the latter stages of the game uh, in a very direct onslaught. They are slightly leaned towards more of a coast-to-coast, beat you with endurance, beat you getting to the edge um, model players. But they, I mean, they're a hell of a effective, as Mitchell was talking about, and they will be a massive threat. So is the Springboks tactic there to really engage those guys on defensive rucks, keep them occupied there where they don't want to be, where they can't then, if there is a turnover, they're not in the right position to to create that extra man out, out wide. Is that is that the idea, keep those guys sucked in? So I guess that comes back to we're not going to be giving it a lot of width early on, certainly not. Yeah, look, uh, it depends whether Underhill and, uh, and Curry are the guys making the high levels of tackles, which is why they're not really attending defensive breakdowns. And maybe the answer there is to tack whoever is inside or outside of those players in England's defensive system so that they have to attend it. They have to be the plus one that's going to try and slow the ball down. Um, 
But, but I mean, they're good enough players that it doesn't really matter. You know, whether you made Richie McCall make 58 tackles a game or allowed him to carry 17 times, either way, he was going to hurt you. He was that good. And these two Lucys are, are that, I mean, they're not as good as Richie McCall, but, yeah. but they're up there. They could be though yeah. in a few years time. Yeah. I mean, who's better? I mean, Andy Hall or Curry, they, they, they really are difficult to decide because uh, each guy has a huge impact on the game. Absolutely. For me, um, it's the guys on the other side of the ball that are going to be more impactful. Peter Steph Detoy's work rate for, for the Springboks is incredible. What he gets through in a game is amazing. Um, and if, if he's effective, if he's allowed to do that volume of work and is effective, that will, in a way, negate what Curry and, and Underhill present for England. Okay. So we, I was going to get into strengths of each team. I guess that's one for England, but we've spoken about Peter Steph Detoy. What about set pieces? I mean, you know, our line out. Still, as the Springboks have only lost one lineout at this World Cup, but Wales were quite clever in not giving the Springboks many lineouts. I think in that whole game, the Springboks had six lineouts on their own ball. Wales didn't kick the ball out, so that took away a slight a weapon from the Springboks. Um, would Eddie have learned anything from that? I mean, Eddie's learned something from everything he's seen about us. You know, um, set piece wise, I think there's quite a lot of parity there. For me, the biggest difference between these two teams is going to be in the kicking game. England's long kicking game basically gives them an extra fifty percent. Uh, uh, kicking meters to South Africa. South Africa opts for lo- lots of box kicks and tries to contest um, that catch and then flood that breakdown and create chaos and just try and generate a situation that harvests turnovers. England's kicking game is long. Uh, if you compare the halfbacks to South Africa's halfbacks, they're averaging 30 meters a kick. We're averaging in the low 20s. So you tally up uh, 20 kicks at an extra 10 meters. That's two lengths of the field. Um, South Africa's ability to control those contestables and not allow those contestables to just become England's ball is going to be vital to being able to exit our 50. But wait, unpack that for me. So England kick about 10 meters further per kick uh, from the halfbacks than South Africa do. Does that mean that surely you've got to affect their contest because it's 10 more meters to make up for the guy contesting the ball, the England player, the wing chasing or whoever's chasing. So I would, I would gather just from that number that he's not getting to the ball as quickly and that therefore the the man fielding the ball has a bit more time and less pressure is that is that correct yeah so that comes back to the whole valley and the and being baited into attack discussion because if you kick long you're not trying to contest that you're trying to make meters with that kick and uh-huh. then make that receiver make a decision about what he's going to do with that position is he going to run it back is he going to kick it back immediately and is get he isolated to... exactly so where we're putting up contestables and trying to win the ball back england will kick long downtown and then presents us with a question what are you going to do with that possession and if you aren't crystal clear on your plan and your structures and you freestyle a bit that plays straight into england's defensive strategy to win turnovers by isolating you so Rassi would of course know this absolutely he will know and so he's going to be saying to Vili don't do anything don't try and be a hero if they kick deep on you kick it out you know we'll contest a line out I mean Garcia's quickly Jerome Garcia's the ref last last week the line outs uh, maybe I'm biased watching it as a as a South African but I felt that there were not many straight line outs from the Welsh side in that and and so the Springboks didn't really get up and contest or couldn't contest. Um, what Was I being one-eyed looking at it that way? No, I think that's fair. I, th- I think, uh, and it goes back to that conversation we had at the last podcast about refs being binary and, and the gray area. Um, it doesn't seem like skew fees is something that they really police very heavily at this World Cup. Um, so I think that was definitely a factor. Uh, just getting back to, you know, the opportunities for South Africa to really leverage against uh, England. There aren't many weaknesses in that chain, but... 
uh, in terms of England centers and the way that they tackle and their tackle efficiency, they have a really low tackle efficiency. Really? Yeah, at, at, at the center position. The rest of the team is, is great, but it, in terms of the centers, they're tackling at 73% over the last two games. That's pretty bad for the midfield, you would think. Well, Owen Farrell's missed seven tackles. Uh, in the, in the, I think it just well, the because he had to tackle low. Well, there you go. He had to learn how to actually use his arms yeah, in the yeah. tackle. <laughs> that makes it a bit more tricky. Yeah, but um, th- there's a real opportunity for us to attack them. And there. Damien's been going well. I mean, so they're going to be sending Damien up that channel all day between Ford and Farrell. Spot on. I mean, Ford is not the most physical defender. Um, it's debatable whether that's a, an advantage or a disadvantage in a way because. Uh, you know, if I have a turnstile at 10, I know that that's where you're attacking and I can kind of plan around it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, it is, it really is an opportunity for, for the Springboks to try and make some meters and generate momentum. How did the Springboks get their wings into the game? Cause Mapimpi and last week and Corsi weren't in the game at all, really. I mean, they chased kicks. That was what they did. But they, when Cheslin's been playing, you kind of feel like he's in the game. And I don't know if that's a, a game specific thing to bring him in or it's because he, brings himself into the game because of his game awareness, his own anticipation. Um, so which is it? And how does the Springboks get Mapimpi and Cheslin into the game this weekend? Yeah, I think we see more of Cheslin in that scenario because, again, if you're playing against a side that has a 74-kilogram winger, um, you want to create situations under contestables where your 100-kilogram winger can get his hands on this guy and physically dominate that tackle fight and then potentially win a turnover. But Cheslin's done a great job of not only fielding those kicks but then evading that first tackler to create a little bit of chaos. Mm. So I think he'll be tested again. Um, I'm not convinced my Pimpy's great under the high ball, and I think they'll test him too. In terms of us getting the wingers into the game on attack, that's a tricky, that's a tricky call for us. And that, you know, for us to reverse the pressure that England's going to try and uh, put on us, we've got to be able to return kicks with interest. And that means that wingers have got to chase those kicks. So I think we're going to see more of the same. I think you're going to see more of wingers in a kick chase role. Uh, I think the only time you're going to see out Mapimpi and, and Colby on the fly is going to be from turnovers or from poor kicks. I can't see us on attack flying to the coast and trying to beat guys one-on-one and win wide breakdowns. We've, uh, we've, we've spoken about this, you know, the, this kick chase. And a lot of people say to me, but surely they kick so much they should be better at it. <laughs> and it's a, it's, a, Great it's a hard one to argue with because, you know, you do sometimes wonder if Fuff, all he does is kick from the base, which is under instruction, we know. Why aren't they more accurate and more consistent? I mean, surely when you're doing that much kicking and that much training of kicking, I would imagine, they should be landing in a in a sort of two or three meter radius every time. And they're not it's more like a 10 meter radius. That's so a bit spray gun. Why are they not getting it right? You know, I think in any professional sport, if you took the center back for Liverpool, maybe he's a bit of a ham-fisted guy. No matter how much time he spends in training in the next two months working on his dribbling, he's probably not a natural dribbler, and that's because he hasn't grown up doing it. Mm. It's too late to be coaching guys on technical skills by the time they get to the professional level. And that is an indictment on South Africa's junior structures that are built for this romantic game and positive rugby, where scrum offs are chosen because they pass well and they're quick but they're almost never instructed to kick. And the only time that they ever put boot to ball is when things get dicey and there's no one to play, and then they close their eyes and whip it downfield and hope something good happens. And inevitably, you get a negative result because of that, yeah. and so don't enjoy the kicking game. So a guy like Faf, I mean, uh, you know, he comes from a team where kicking was almost outlawed in a way. Um, it was all about attack at the Lions. Uh, and, and so he hasn't really had a massive emphasis in his career on, the, on his kicking game. To try and fix it now at a World Cup is just not going to happen. But to his credit, he's obviously at his time at Sale Sharks, he's had to kick. Um, and he's, he certainly is the epitome of, of the change in the Springbok side, isn't he? That 
Rossi came in with a very specific plan and said, look, this is how we've got to play in this limited time. We have 25 tests. Rossi's been in charge. That's all. And now we're at a World Cup final. Um, and we've got to play percentages. We've got to play territory and we've got to get you know, the ball down in the other part of the field. And and Faf, he would have been the last guy you would have thought Rossi would have called in to do that job because I was so against his natural DNA. But he has. So he's almost the epitome of how the teams embraced what Rossi has given them in this short space of time. Yes. I think Fuff's selection, though, it comes back to the whole sway thing and, the, and the, Rossi's interest in growing the attack. Um, he just picked the best available players and has tried to work with them to fit the plan that he has. But there's definitely somewhere in Rossi's plan, there's a space for converting field position into tries. And guys like Faf and Vili uh, are skilled at that. I mean, it's no secret that Vili is a, is a, is a first receiver in, a, in his secondary role. And his job after Andre tucks the ball under one arm and runs straight at the line is to, is to get the backs away and to, to read the situation and to, if there's kick space taken and otherwise to play guys in, in, into space. So, um, I don't really believe that Rossi selected Fuff and thought he could turn him into a great kicker. I just thought he said, if I don't take Fuff, I'm going to take some other Paluka who may be a better kicker, but offers nothing, mm. nothing else in other areas. Um, and so he went with Fuff, who's an A plus attacking player and offers real value as a blitzer on defense. He's uh, good in that role, isn't he? Incredible. Incredible. His ability to just, uh, apply pressure and, and make good reads to catch the opposing halfback with the ball is, I mean, it's world class. Um, but there is no, you can't, it's difficult to explain. I mean, rugby is not a parallel game. If it was an electric circuit, it'd be serial. So you've got to do certain things before you can get to the end of that serial process and then do, do the attack. And one of the early things you have to do is you have to be able to kick and you have to be able to tackle. So Fuff is obviously a guy who adds value on defense. But in the kicking game, somebody has to take control of that element and bring world-class execution there. Otherwise, everything that follows is going to be tainted by poor kicks. And we've seen that. Yeah. You know, when, when kicks are great or kicks are at least decent – uh, the plan is obvious. The, f- the efficiency of their plan-, plan is obvious. But as soon as those kicks start to get wayward, they beat the chaser or they just go straight up, uh, their response is quick from everybody. Why are we kicking? Yeah. And I mean, let's be honest, there's an element of luck that's going to go into this game as well. As you're talking about a kick going straight up in the air, it bounces, it bounces straight into big marauding loose forwards arms and he bursts 20 meters upfield. I mean, how much you can't you can't guess this, but I mean, luck will play a factor in in a tight final, surely. Absolutely, absolutely, and and, and so that's why it comes back to that Japan game and, and talking about how many opportunities we created there, how few of those opportunities we converted. You call that luck or not luck, or however you want to look at it. South Africa's um, strike rate has to improve. Mm. Against England, we may get two opportunities to score a try on the break like that, and if you don't take any of them, you will lose on the scoreboard. Does South Africa have to be more ambitious, though? I mean, to your point that their strike rate isn't good, but I think against Wales, they didn't really even try an attacking move other than the one that led to Dill Ender's try. That was when they took the ball in a good area of the field through about five or six phases with Snayman and, and Marks quite prominent, and eventually Pollard broke the line, came back, really put Dill Ender away. But to win this game against England... They could win it on kicks. They could suffocate England. It could be an armrest and they could get over the line 9-6 or something, possibly. But like we've said for years, to beat the All Blacks, you're unlikely to beat the All Blacks without scoring a try or two in a game. Um, and do you feel the same holds for this England side? You're unlikely to beat them with four penalties. You're going to need something else to, to win this game. Yes, I, I think we need to be more ambitious, but not with our attack. I think we need to be more ambitious in the way that we kick so instead of having these bombs that come off nine almost exclusively, let's play wide and kick from wider. So let's have Vili receiving that ball on a two pass and then banging it long downfield. 
so that it hits grass potentially behind one of those receivers. And now they've got limited time and limited vision to collect that ball and make decisions. I think if we just go against England with a sort of battering ram approach straight at the front gates, they're well prepared for, for that and they've got more weapons to combat us in that scenario. Mm. I think if we play wide and those def- that defending back three has to consider whether Villy's going to play Cheslin in space or bang it long for Cheslin to chase and what happens after that, the game will almost become slightly looser. Um, and... In that scenario, our game breakers really come to the party. We already know that if it comes down to a chess match of execution, we won't beat England because they've got four years invested in this plan and we've got two. And they've got pieces that are metronomes, feral, uh, youngs, that will just bang it with their eyes closed and it'll hit a ticky. We've got more playmakers like Fuff, uh, Damien and Vili. So... I want us to be more ambitious on, t- on, on our attacking kicking game and the way that we kick. Maybe let Lucano's uh, kicking boots come into play more often. Um, England, I think they had five kicks for 123 meters in, in the match against New Zealand from center. Damien's got a huge boot. Let's, there should be wrinkles in our kicking game so that they don't know in this position of the field, it's only coming off nine. This will be the receiver. This will be the chaser. And this is the return plan. Let's give them some looks with mm. our kicking game that they're going to have to solve on the fly. Because as it stands now, they know exactly what's coming if we play to type, right? So just the coaches. I mean, they're both smart men, clearly, in rugby. Uh, Eddie Jones has done a great job, and you mentioned it, four years invested. I mean, Rossi Rasmus is two years behind him in development. I mean, Eddie's had a chance to spend two years developing the plan and then putting the layers on top. The box haven't really got to the point where they can put the layers on top. And now today, Rossi confirmed, although he had said it before, but he confirmed that he's not going to continue a Springbok coach after the World Cup final. Um, but he will continue in director of rugby role, which he right. was always going to do. So he will still have an influence. But just to, in terms of the Springboks have done so well to get to the World Cup and you feel like we're only at the beginning of something. Yeah, not you know, Even if they go on to win the World Cup, it doesn't feel like it's a destination for the Springboks. It's only the start of something. And yet now if Rossi moves on, it feels like oh, we've got to start all over again with someone else. And um, do you think this is, this is an issue for South African rugby? Like I know Rossi will still be involved, but we almost have to restart again from 20, uh, 2020. This is, this is probably the only time um, in the history of us, uh, of South Africa at the World Cup, where I feel like there will be some succession uh, from the current regime because Rossi's role at the Stormers was as a director of rugby. I think from 2011, he stepped back from the coaching role, uh, took a director of rugby role there, got involved with the under-21s, used to run lineouts with the under-21s on the field and jump in the lineouts with the under-21s. So I think he has a very clear plan about how it's going to look when he steps back from the coaching role and has somebody come in. And the person that comes in is not going to, I don't think, is not going to be somebody who is uh, extremely strong-minded and not willing to um, take some pointers. I think Russi's plan will continue. And I think Russi may even be more effective not having to deal with the daily the daily coaching chores. If he can get a guy in who's willing to uh, extend and continue Russi's plan, uh, and all the sort of high-performance benefits that come from the system that Rusty's put in place there at SA Rugby, I, th- I think we'll, we'll continue to improve. We'll continue to gr- grow and develop. And I, and I think the future is actually bright for South Africa. Like you said, we've only got two years. We're only two years in under Rusty. Potentially, we could be six years in under Rusty at the, at the next World Cup. And yes, there might be a man that sits in a chair and speaks to the media and, and puts out the cones and runs the training sessions. Um, but I think the core of the plan will, will still be Rusty's brainchild going forward. So I think we're in a great place. England... You know, if Eddie steps away, that, I mean, most of the IP goes with him. Yeah. I mean, most of the innovation, I mean, yeah, losing Eddie, I don't think Eddie, Eddie can be replaced at England too easily. Will he stick around if they don't win the World Cup? 
That's a great question. I mean, I heard initially that he was going to be sticking around after the World Cup, and then then I heard some rumors that he was definitely not going to be. So I'm not really sure what the future holds there, uh, and whether the guys that work under him are, are are willing to stick around with a guy who has really high standards and and uh, and holds him to those standards. Last one: Have the two best teams made the World Cup final in your opinion? In my books, absolutely. The two teams that play to win, the two teams that don't apologize for not trying to entertain the crowd, that are just there to put more points on the scoreboard than their opponents are in the final. Um, and, and I think that's great. I think that's great for rugby. I think the sooner rugby comes around to accepting what it is and what it isn't, the better. Um, because then we can all just get on with trying to refine this great game and stop apologizing for the fact that it's not a, a basketball shootout. I think it's great. Yeah. And I know you've been saying it, but your prediction for the final? <laughs> <laughs> I know where you stood before this uh, yeah. tournament started. Oh, look, Craig, I'd love to see South Africa win it. Um, I think they definitely can win it. I don't think it's as clear-cut as, as Joe Public thinks. I think the fact that we go in there almost as under, well as underdogs and having been written off is a, is a huge uh, tailwind for us. The things that Eddie said about New Zealand last week now apply to, to his England side. They are the clear-cut favourites. There is pressure on them to, to pull this off. Um, but I think in the end, unless there's a good bounce of the ball, listen, before we even shut this thing down, we've got to talk about the referees. The fact that it's Garces mm. with Ben Skeen as and the Pott. TMO <laughs> and uh, Ben O'Keefe and Pot on the touchlines, I would be willing to bet your salary that there's going to be, uh, there's going to be some controversial calls. Well, that's always the danger, isn't it? I mean, we hope it doesn't. A yellow card maybe doesn't ruin a game completely, but it's possible that we, we all see game ruined it's been we've been quite lucky through this world cup in the knockout phases that other than the french game we haven't had too many and it wasn't controversial that was a straight red but uh we haven't had those sort of pool game fiascos that we saw earlier in the tournament that could uh, come back to bite us but uh you think this 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 quartet of officials could have a big impact? And Garces is on his way out. I mean, he might well, just that, want to go out in a, gla- in a blaze of glory. That worries to me. To send off the guy's, seven players. He's retiring and there's no sort of comeback if he has, I mean, if he has a shocker. It's crazy. So, I, I, you know, in that situation, maybe there's a controversial call that favours us. that puts South Africa into a 14-point lead after 20 minutes and England has to chase. That'll change the whole dynamic. But... You know, all things being equal, I think England are definitely the favourites for a reason and my money would be on them to win this. Thank you, Zilling Noel, and uh, enjoy the rugby this weekend. I mean, we don't get to watch a Rugby World Cup very often. I'm Craig Gray, and thanks for joining us for the Maverick Sports Podcast. And uh, don't forget to subscribe to the Daily Maverick Sports Newsletter for all your latest sports news.